0: Second part of chapter one of the second volume of The Life of Reason. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Fredrik Carlson. The Life of Reason by George Santayana. Side note. Sexual functions its basis. Plastic matter, in transmitting its organization, takes various courses which it is the part of natural history to describe. Even after reproduction has become sexual, it will offer no basis for love if it does not require a union of the two parent bodies. Did germinal substances, unconsciously diffused, meet by chance in the external medium and unite there, It is obvious that whatever obsessions or pleasures maturity might bring, they would not have the quality which men call love. But when an individual of the opposite sex must be met with, recognized and pursued, and must prove responsive, then each is haunted by the possible other each feels in a generic way the presence and attraction of his fellows he vibrates to their touch he dreams of their image he is restless and wistful if alone when the vague need that solicits him is met by the presence of a possible mate it is extraordinarily kindled Then, if it reaches fruition, it subsides immediately, and after an interval perhaps of stupor and vital recuperation, the animal regains his independence, his peace, and his impartial curiosity. You might think him on the way to becoming intelligent, but the renewed nutrition and cravings of the sexual machinery soon engross his attention again all his sprightly indifference vanishes before nature's categorical imperative. That fierce and turbid pleasure, by which his obedience is rewarded, hastens his dissolution. Every day the ensuing lassitude and emptiness give him a clearer premonition of death. It is not figuratively only that his soul has passed into his offspring. The vocation to produce them was a chief part of his being, and when that function is sufficiently fulfilled, he is superfluous in the world and becomes partly superfluous even to himself. The confines of his dream are narrowed, he moves apathetically and dies forlorn some echo of the vital rhythm which pervades not merely the generations of animals but the seasons and the stars emerges sometimes in consciousness on reaching the tropics in the mortal ecliptic which the human individual may touch many times without much change in his outer fortunes the soul may occasionally divine that it is passing through a supreme Crisis. Passion, when vehement, may bring atavistic sentiments. When love is absolute, it feels a profound impulse to welcome death, and even by a transcendental confusion, to invoke the end of the universe. Footnote B One example among a thousand is the cry of Siegfried and Brunhilde in Wagner lachend laß uns ver- verderben lachend laß uns verderben lachend zu grunde lachend laschend lach lachend laß uns verderben lachend zugrunde lach. grunde gehen fahr in valhalls leuchtende welt leb wohl prachende götterpracht ende do ewig geschlecht the human soul reverts at such a moment to what an ephemeral insect might feel buzzing till it finds its mate in the noon its whole destiny was wooing and that mission accomplished it sings its nunc dimittis renouncing heartily all irrelevant things now that the one fated and all satisfying good has been achieved. Where parental instincts exists also, nature soon shifts her loom, a milder impulse succeeds, and a satisfaction of a gentler sort follows in the birth of children. The transcendental illusion is here corrected, and it is seen that the extinction the lovers had accepted needed not to be complete. The death they welcomed was not without its little resurrection. The feeble worm they had generated bore their immortality within it. The varieties of sexual economy are many, and to each may correspond, for all we know, a special sentiment. Sometimes the union established is intermittent sometimes it crowns the end of life and dissolves it altogether sometimes it remains while it lasts monogamous sometimes the sexual and social alertness is constant in the male only periodic in the female sometimes the group established for procreation endures throughout the seasons and from year to year sometimes the males herd together as if normally they preferred their own society until the time of rut comes, when war arises between them for the possession of what they have just discovered to be the fair. SIDE NOTE. STRUCTURE THE GROUND OF FACULTY AND FACULTY OF DUTY. A naturalist, not ashamed, to indulge his poetic imagination might easily paint for us the drama of these diverse loves it suffices for our purpose to observe that the varying passions and duties which life can contain depend upon the organic functions of the animal a fish incapable of coition absolved from all care for its young which it never sees or never distinguishes from the casual swimmers darting across its path such a fish being without social faculties or calls to cooperation, cannot have the instincts perceptions or emotions which belong to social beings a male of some higher species that feels only once a year the sudden solicitations of love cannot be sentimental in all the four seasons his headlong passion exhausted upon its present object and dismissed at once without remainder leaves his senses perfectly free and colourless to scrutinise his residual world Whatever further fears or desires may haunt him will have nothing mystical or sentimental about them. He will be a man of business all the year round, and a lover only on May Day. A female that does not suffice for the rearing of her young will expect and normally receive her mate's aid long after the pleasures of love are forgotten by him disinterested fidelity on his part will then be her right and his duty but a female that once pregnant needs like the hen no further cooperation on the male's part will turn from him at once with absolute indifference to brood perpetually on her eggs undisturbed by the least sense of solitude or jealousy and the chicks that at first follow her and find shelter under her wings will soon be forgotten also and relegated to the mechanical landscape there is no pain in the timely snapping of the dearest bonds where society has not become a permanent organism and perpetual friendship is not one of its possible modes transcendent and ideal passions may well judge themselves to have an incomparable dignity. Yet that dignity is hardly more than what every passion, were it articulate, would assign to itself and to its objects. The dumbness of a passion may accordingly, from one point of view, be called the index of its baseness for if it cannot ally itself with ideas, its affinities can hardly lie in the rational mind, nor its advocates be among the poets. But if we listen to the master passion itself, rather than to the loquacious arts it may have enlisted in its service, we shall understand that it is not self-condemned because it is silent nor an anomaly in nature because inharmonious with human life the fish's heartlessness is his virtue the male beast's lasciviousness is his vocation and if these functions were retrenched or encumbered in order to assimilate them to human excellence they would be merely dislocated we should not produce virtue where there was vice but defeat a possible arrangement which would have had its own vitality and order. SIDE NOTE GLORY OF ANIMAL LOVE Animal love is a marvellous force, and while it issues in acts that may be followed by a revulsion of feeling, it yet deserves a more sympathetic treatment than art and morals have known how to accord it. EROTIC POETS to hide their want of ability to make the dumb passion speak, have played feebly with veiled insinuations and comic effects, while more serious sonneteers have harped exclusively on secondary and somewhat literary emotions, abstractly conjugating the verb to love. Lucretius, in spite of his didactic turns, has been on this subject too the most ingenious and magnificent of poets although he chose to confine his descriptions to the external history of sexual desire it is a pity that he did not turn with his sublime sincerity to the inner side of it also and write the drama of the awakened senses the poignant poignetization of beauty when it clouds the brain and makes the conventional earth seen through that bright haze seem a sorry fable western poets should not have despised what the orientals in their fugitive stanzas seem often to have sung most exquisitely the joy of gazing on the beloved of following or being followed of tacit understandings and avowals of flight together into some solitude to people it with those ineffable confidences which so naturally follow the outward proofs of love all this makes the brightest page of many a life the only bright page in the thin biography of many a human animal while if the beasts could speak they would give us no doubt endless versions of the only joy in which as we may fancy the blood of the universe flows consciously through their hearts The darkness which conventionally covers this passion is one of the saddest consequences of Adam's fall. It was a terrible misfortune in man's development that he should not have been able to acquire the higher function without deranging the lower. Why should the depths of his being be thus polluted and the most delightful of nature's mysteries be an occasion not for communion with her as it should have remained, but for depravity and sorrow? Sidenote. It's degradation when instincts become numerous and competitive. This question, asked in moral perplexity, admits of a scientific answer. Man, in becoming more complex, becomes less stably organised his sexual instinct instead of being intermittent but violent and boldly declared becomes practically constant but is entangled in many cross-currents of desire in many other equally imperfect adaptations of structure to various ends Indulgence, in any impulse, can then easily become excessive and thwart the rest. For it may be aroused artificially and maintained from without, so that in turn it disturbs its neighbors. Sometimes the sexual instinct may be stimulated out of reason by example, by a too-wakeful fancy, by language, by pride for all these forces are now working in the same field and intermingling their suggestions. At the same time the same instinct may derange others and make them fail at their proper and pressing occasions. Side note: Moral censure provoked. In consequence of such derangements, reflection and public opinion will come to condemn what in itself was perfectly innocent. The corruption of a given instinct by others, and of others by it, becomes the ground for long attempts to suppress or enslave it. With a haste and formalism natural to language and to law, external and arbitrary limits are set to its operation as no inward adjustment can possibly correspond to these conventional barriers and compartments of life. A war between nature and morality breaks out both in society and in each particular bosom. A war in which every victory is a sorrow and every defeat a dishonour. As one instinct after another becomes furious or disorganized, cowardly or criminal under these artificial restrictions, the public and private conscience turns against it all its forces, necessarily without much nice discrimination. The frank passions of youth are met with a grimace of horror on all sides, with rumorus senum severiorum, with an insistence of reticence and hypocrisy. Such suppression is favourable to corruption. The fancy, with a sort of idiotic ingenuity, comes to supply the place of experience, and nature is rendered vicious, and overlaid with pruraincy, artifice, and the love of novelty. Hereupon the authorities that rule in such matters naturally redouble their vigilance, and exaggerate their reasonable censure chastity begins to seem essentially holy and perpetual virginity ends by becoming an absolute ideal thus the disorder in man's life and disposition when grown intolerable leads him to condemn the very elements out of which order might have been constituted and to mistake his total confusion for his total depravity. End of Chapter One, Part Two.